I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This week, I'm bringing you another infamous Baltimore episode. This week, I'm talking about the brutal slaying of Sister Myra, matriarch of the most powerful Romani clans in Baltimore and one of the most powerful clans in the country. So what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word gypsy? Hmm? Is it a movie? A TV show, perhaps? Do you think of the circus or carnivals or something? When I think of the word, um, before doing the story, I used to think of the um, movie Snatch. You remember with uh, Brad Pitt? It was the, um, that bad guy movie, Shoot 'em Up, Bang Bang movie by uh, Guy Ritchie. Anyway, Brad Pitt, if you remember in the movie, is supposed to be a part of a gypsy tribe. And he and um, uh, everybody applauded him for his voice acting work, or at least that's what I remember when it first came out. Everybody was really proud of how much he had worked, how good he had worked on his um, accent. And they were, you know, perceived to be kind of dirty, tricky Um, second class kind of citizens, kind of trifling, you know what I mean? Um, But yeah, that's what I I think of when I think of uh, Gypsy, that that movie, because that's my only real connection to gypsies. Um, Well, no, that's that's the immediate thing. But then I remember my uh, band teacher hooked me to um, a lot of different music. And there was this one guitar player um, from the early 1900s. And I think his name was Django, Reinhold, Reinhold, something like that. Um, And he played really well and they said he was a gypsy. But that was like my only reference outside of Snatch, uh, the movie. And then of course, uh, Carnival, uh, American Horror Story Carnival, you know. But outside of that, I really didn't have a reference for, um, for gypsies, but you know, in doing the research for this story, what I what I came to know is not only is our gypsies considered to be what we say is gypsies, uh, or what is actually known as Romani, um, considered to be an ethnic group, but actually there's an ethnic flag, kind of like the red, black, and green Black Liberation flag for Black folks, or uh, do you know what I mean? Actually, just like that. Um, if you Google it, the Romani flag, it is um, blue and uh, blue on top of green with a red six spoked um, wheel, basically. And the blue is supposed to represent the heaven and the green is supposed to represent the earth and the wheel and the spokes are supposed to represent like the people and their spirit and their, you know, traveling spirit and all of that stuff. Um So I'll get into the history of um, gypsies and their migration to the United States and and all of that um, later in this episode. But, um, you know, I I said when I wanted to do this series because there's a lot of interesting things that come out of Baltimore that kind of shed a light, even though I'm talking about crime, um, because there's just a lot of stuff that happens, a lot of humanity is here and in Baltimore. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but just go with me. There are a lot of interesting things that happen here. And behind every case, there's, there's an underlying, there's like something else. There's always something else under it. 
um, like the Methany case, like clearly he needed some help from way back um, and nobody, nobody helped him. And not only that, but, you know, the city has this history of kind of, and this country rather, of kind of throwing away people. As I've, you've, as I've explored in some of the other earlier episodes, they, the city has a history of kind of sweeping away or sweeping on the, under the rug the, the, you know, the things that happen to some of the least of us, as, as you know, church folks say. Um, do you know what I mean? And so, you know, I think when, and looking at, I think why I'm so fascinated by a lot of these um these cases is because they're not just cut and cut and dry. A bad guy did a bad thing or a bad woman did a bad thing. There's always something else. It's never black and white. Like I grew up to think of crime. Um, and so that's kind of why I want to do infamous Baltimore, because there's always a reason. There's always a something um, behind it. So certainly in this story, I'm not going to be able to delve too deeply in the something behind it. Um, because there's only, there's very little known. I was only able to find very little of, of, um, Sister Myra's, um, uh, murderer. Um, but nevertheless, there is a something. Um, and it kind of goes back to, it harkens back to another episode, infamous Baltimore episode, but I'll, you'll, you'll get it in a second. But real quick, um, I do want to share that this, again, I'm talking about the untimely demise of Sister Myra. So, um, it's it's the the story itself is interesting but it's it's going to be hard too and so while i don't go into great detail i will describe a violent act that may not be suitable for most listeners um so now that is out of the way um i do want to give a shout out so the research for today's topic comes from um two primarily um about the crime itself come from two baltimore sun articles uh one written by peter herman and joel obermeyer in november 1999 and the other written by kate shatskin in april 1995 and i also um did a lot of research using wikipedia and other websites talking about and dedicated to the romani culture so um and i'm going to break it down in first in a couple of parts first i'm going to talk about gypsies in baltimore and just kind of um track that story there then i'm going to actually go into the untimely demise of sister myra um and then i'm going to kind of wrap this puppy up so all right first up um gypsies in baltimore quick correction before i um jump into talking about uh gypsies in baltimore the sun article that i um one of the sun articles that i referenced from um Peter Herman and and Joel Obermeyer was actually written in November 1994, not um, whatever I said. Um, Anyway, so yeah, Deborah Stevens was uh, better known professionally um, as Sister Myra, and she was a palm and tarot card reader. Um, She was also the matriarch and leader of one of the most powerful gypsy bands in the country. Um... Known to give refuge to caravans of gypsies who follow carnivals up and down the East Coast. She was the daughter of, um, daughter-in-law, excuse me, daughter-in-law rather of King Dick Stevens. And if you Google him, he's got an interesting story. Anyway, um, a national gypsy leader who operated in Cherry Hill, a a Cherry Hill coppersmith shop from the 1920s until his death in 1995. 
I really wish you would Google, if you are not from Baltimore, I really wish you would Google where Cherry Hill is. Because if you understood the history of Cherry Hill, as I do, um, as I've come to know in, in just my work, I've had to know this, but I'm also fascinated about the making and shaping of Baltimore. It's interesting that that he would operate a shop in Cherry Hill, given the history of Cherry Hill and kind of the way that it was kind of cordoned off and, and, and the people were kind of, again, as I had mentioned earlier, um, you know, kind of pushed to the side like we like the city in this country often does to people who are considered to be undesirable or just can't keep up anyway. But nevertheless, he operated a Cherry Hill uh, coppersmith shop from 1920s until his death in 1959. Sister Myra, uh, or Deborah Stevens, lived and worked out of her home on the 1400 block of Pulaski Highway um, next to the Dunkin' Donuts that still stands today. And in fact, I was, because I was hungry, I was over there. Um, and I think the only DD that I wanted to go to because I didn't feel like, oh, I'm lazy. I didn't feel like getting out of the car. So I wanted to go to a drive-thru and the DD, um, the only DD that's close to me that I don't have to get out to uh, go into the store is the one off Pulaski Highway. So I drove over there and the house still stands today, um, although it is for sale. Anyhow, um, so gypsies in Baltimore. So real quick, gypsies is the colloquial term for Romani, who are ethnically and genealogically different from other Europeans. Um, Again, part of that snatch story was that, you know, these look like other Europeans. They just didn't have, didn't share the same language. Um, And so there's a, there's a reason for that. Um, So um, they're genealogically different from other Europeans who began settling in America in the mid 19th century. And there's a reason, there's a reason for that. I'll get into later. The Romani people originate though, from Northern India, presumably from the Northwestern Indian states of, okay, and just go with me because I am, I'm working my best right now. Rod, Rajathsan, right, Rajath, Rajathsan, oof, R-A-J-A-S-T-H-A-N, Rajasthan, Rajasthan, I bet you it's Rajasthan, and Punjab, and I only know how to say that because I've seen it before, and I've heard someone else say it before. Anyway, um, Romani slaves were first shipped to the Americas with Columbus in 1492. Imagine that. Spain sent Romani slaves to the Louisiana colony between 1762 and the 1800s. And the Romanic, Romanical, um, or the first Romani group to arrive in North America in large numbers, came to America from Britain around 1850. Eastern European Romani, the ancestors of most of the Romani population in the United States today, um, began immigrating to the United States on a large scale over the later half of the 19th century. Um, and following their liberation from slavery in Romania, the second wave of Romani immigration came after 1989, following the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe. So one of the things that you need to know is if you Google uh, Romani populations in the United States and across the um, globe, what you'll see is something pretty interesting, which is um, there are very few, there's a small population of, of Romani people who are left in Romania. And again, it's largely because of the persecution that they were under um, while there. Um, and 
more larger populations in both the United States, Canada. Um, there's a small contingent in um, South Africa, of all places, which shocked me. Um, and then a large, decently large population in Brazil. I think it's uh, 75, 750,000 uh, 750, to a million. And in the United States, it's about uh, 1.1 million. Um, yeah, so the Romani... Um, I think the reason why they're in Brazil is because they were escaping World War II. Um, because again, what you know is even in Snatch, what they told you is the, the narrative, kind, the kind of the narrative was that folk don't, folk aren't really checking for the Romani uh, people like that. They, they think of them in a lot of ways. They, they're persecuted. Well, I'm not going to compare to them anymore, but they are oppressed in a lot of different ways. Um, for a number of different reasons. I can remember if I'm if I'm being honest, I remember maybe 10 years ago, 5 to 10 years ago, I remember I was listening to I don't know, maybe it was some podcast, it was some podcast or maybe it was NPR, like a news brief had come up while I was uh listening to the radio, maybe WEA or something like that. Anyhow, um of this case where there was a child who was taken from a Romani or gypsy encampment in Europe somewhere because the, the this little child was blind. But the parents and everybody that claimed to be uh, the, that child's family were dark haired and, and had a browner tone. And this child came out lily white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, and so they... It, I guess the European version of child protective services or whatever country they were in their, their version of child protective services took that child. And there was this huge legal case and they did DNA testing come to find out, of course, all along the parents were correct. This is my child. And it's just, it's funny because, you know, you talk to any black person and they'll tell you that two parents can have three children and all three of them come out different colors because that is part of our heritage. It's just the way it goes um, because we're ultimately a part of the diaspora and slavery had a lot to do with that. And, and um, you know, being abused by slave masters and, and, and all of that was a part of it. And so you can have four kids, two kids, you can have two kids and both of them come out looking like they're related but one could be chocolate and the other one could be real light and that's nothing and so I just thought it was funny although it was heartbreaking at the same time I just thought it was funny that these people really thought that this this uh, family could not produce someone that looked different than them and I just remembered that you know sometimes people are ignorant to the point where they just do some wild stuff like take somebody's child anyway um so Moving back, so where I last left off, um, Romani population in the states today began immigrating to the United States on a large scale over the latter half of the 19th century following their liberation from slavery in Romania. And the second wave of Romani Im immigration came after 1989 following the collapse of communism in Central, Eastern, or Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, in 1994, according to the Sun Art, one of those Sun articles, um, 150 gypsies were living in Baltimore. Now, whether or not you believe that, you need to know something. One of the things that I've learned is that gypsies don't necessarily identify themselves as gypsies. And so when you're talking about uh, census tracts and things like that, you're not going to get 
people coming out and saying, first off, there's nowhere to put Romani on the census track. So it's not like they're identifying um, as Romani. They just are. Um, and so I question this 150 number. Um, but nevertheless, the article, one of the articles from The Sun stated that there were 150 gypsies living in Baltimore in 94. And Miss Stevens, as I had mentioned before, was um, a relative of King Dick Stevens, who had died in his East Utah Street home in 1959 at the age of 72. He had moved to Baltimore at the turn of the century and became a citizen in um, 1904. And so that's right around the time that's right in line with that, that migration from Eastern Europe and Eastern and Central Europe happened and folk were coming over to the United States in that first wave. Uh, Romani people were coming uh, from Europe in that first wave of immigration. Um, So until his death and his death, King Dick Stevens, he led an estimated 10,000 gypsies from around the nation and the Stevens clan was considered the most powerful in the United States. And Stephen led in her own way as the living book and storykeeper of Romani traditions, which makes her story kind of tragic and ultimately kind of end all the more sad when you learn that, you know, some of the stories in oral history of the traditions died with her on that cold day in 1994. So I'm about to do one of those things where I tell a story within a story. So I, I sli- I'm going to slide. I'm going to try to slide right back into this today's story real well, but just like flow with me. OK, so Kid Fury of the Read podcast has this YouTube channel. He used to update it regularly when the podcast first began, but he didn't really doesn't do it too much anymore. You know, what with writing scripts for HBO shows, preparing for a, a late night TV show with Crystal um, on Fuse, still doing the read, hosting 305 Live, you know, things like that. Anyway, so he has this video on his channel um, that he did on his first time coming to Baltimore. And actually, I think it was about it was actually about an appearance he was doing in D.C., but he ended up talking about his first time in Baltimore. Um And anyway, um, he talks about how ridiculously trusting um, at one point Baltimoreans are for doing this thing called hacking. And for those of you who don't know, hacking in Baltimore has nothing to do with computer fraud, but it is illegal. So basically, if you stand on any corner in the city, parts of the county, too, but for the most part, the city and real quick, Baltimore City is its own independent county. Um, Baltimore County is a, is a county that surrounds Baltimore City, but it has a whole bunch of different cities. Weird, I know, but just roll with it. Anyway, so ne- any, going forward, the next time I say in the city or the county, I'm talking about Baltimore City as an independent city. And when I'm saying the county, I'm talking about Baltimore County, which is outside of Baltimore City. Anyway, um, so you can stand on any corner in the city and parts of the county um, and flick your wrist in this particular fa- fashion, you know, flick your finger and, and your wrist in this particular fashion. And a random dr- uh, a random driver will pull over and give you a ride um, after y'all, you know, will give you a ride to wherever you're going after y'all negotiate the price for the ride. Um, and it's all in cash. 
Um, so yeah, it's that, it's that kind of even that transaction. They give you a ride, you give them money and that driver is called a hack. But if I'm being honest, when I first moved here, I really don't hear it so much now, but when I first moved here, I think the term is used interchangeably. Be honest with you. Um, hubby has hacked before. And when he's talked about, he's used the term. It's like, oh, I hacked, meaning I took my car and I picked somebody up. And they gave me money to drop them off somewhere. Um, But then I've also heard friends of mine who said, oh, yeah, I caught a hack. As in they were picked up by some random stranger and gave them money to be taken wherever they wanted to go. Um, Yeah, it's it's like an illegal taxi and you can get a ticket for it. Um, I don't know, but the cops here really have other things to worry about. So it's basically still a common practice and is as common as uh, catching a lift or something. Or any other ride share. Um, anyway, um, I know it's scary. And it is scary. You are trusting a total stranger to get in your car and not assault you. Or you getting in some total stranger's car and not be assaulted. And we know that these things have happened. Cabbies have been assaulted by their passengers. And passengers have been assaulted by cabbies since the invention of taxis. I'm sure. Um, but it's natural here. In, in, in Baltimore, it's like people have side businesses and I think this is everywhere, but here in Baltimore, people have side businesses and hustles out of their homes um, because, you know, it's easier than buying a medallion for a cab or working toward that, um, you know, to drive a taxi or uh, buying a brick and mortar shop, um, like in the case of Deborah Stevens, BK, uh, um, BKA sister Myra. As I said, she was a tarot card reader and a fortune teller who ran her business out of her home where strangers like Donald Thomas Clark would come to seek guidance. And this is kind of the part where I don't have a whole lot of information, but just flow with what I have. Um, Donald Thomas Clark was a, for all intents and purposes, a troubled 28 year old who had received counsel from Miss Deborah uh, once before. And in fact, uh, Miss Deborah complained to her son on November 15th that she was at uh, 94, um, that she was concerned about a client that she had talked him down from acting on his suicidal ideation and that she was worried something bad was going to happen. The next day on the 16th, one of Miss, uh, Miss Deborah's son found her body, but he thought it was a joke. And so he called one of his brothers to witness the sick humor before they quickly realized that it wasn't a joke that their mother was dead and headless. Her head was found about 10 feet away from her body. Clark was quickly arrested um, about two hours after the body was found when he apparently tried to commit suicide by throwing himself under a moving Amtrak train. On two separate instances, he jumped in front of an Amtrak police car that was chasing him and he ultimately confessed to the crime while being treated for those injuries. During an interrogation, um, Clark admitted he had gone to her because some Jamaicans had put a hex on him, which he referred to as roots. Um, And if you go back uh, to some of my earlier episodes, um, uh, Black American folklore, the scary stories my daddy told me, we know that roots or root work is a part of hoodoo. Um, And so you know he used that term and I think the writers didn't understand that and, and and I don't expect folks to really understand hoodoo culture unless you are researching it and I only know it peripherally 
flow with that one too because I'm pretty sure I just made that up anyway I only know about it a little bit how about that um but anyway we know roots is root work even though the writer um and I got this phrase from the the writer the hex they didn't really know much about it you could tell anyway that these Jamaicans had put a root on him um and that he had no spine and that he could not die and so Clark ultimately ultimately concluded after visiting uh, Miss Deborah that he believed she was a demon that he had to kill because her because she was she was the devil. Clark was diagnosed while in custody with schizophrenia um, after testing taken at the Clinton T. Perkins Center for the criminally insane, where he was placed after he was arrested. After sentencing. Clinton was, or Clark was committed to the center on um, April 24th, 1995 for um, Miss Deborah Stevens's murder. Deborah Stevens was 62 at the time of her death and the mother of three sons who gave her 14 grandchildren. Born and raised in Chicago, she moved to Baltimore to be with her husband and the Stevens clan who, like her family, had immigrated to the U.S. from Romania at the turn of the century. People from clans all over the country descended on Baltimore to attend a three-day celebration of her life before eulogizing her at the Greek Orthodox Cathedral of the Annunciation and laying her to rest in a winter-white sequin gown in Western Cemetery next to her husband, Walter, who had died 15 years earlier. I really wanted to do that um, to kind of wrap this thing up um, because as I was reaching this story uh, or researching this story, rather, I, I found that it was harder to learn about her and easier to learn about like the macabre details of the event itself. You really don't even hear much about Clark either, apart from he was locked up. Um, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and then subsequently, um, you know, put put away. Um, and so I, I just, I kind of, after doing this research, I, I, I kind of just want to take a step back. I, I want to continue the infamous Baltimore series. And again, it won't necessarily be back to back. It'll be kind of sporadically throughout the year. But I think I want to focus on other stories that don't present women as victims all the time. Um, and, and I can do that. There, there are many fascinating stories that tell the stories to tell that don't include violence against women. And, and I want to tell them um, because again, like these websites, it's all about telling the story of the crime and trying to make it as sensational as possible, but not really humanizing, not really interested in humanizing the, the, the perpetrator or the victim um, and kind of giving context. It's just kind of, ooh, let's talk about this gruesome thing that happened. Um, and so I think I just want to steer clear of those because number one, I just want to ooh, cleanse my spirit. Um, but then also just kind of, again, there are so many different stories in Baltimore to tell that on the surface of them seem so black and white, but they're actually not black and white. And in this case, you know, this woman did this thing that seems very risky, but it's quite natural to do in Baltimore, which is to do something out of your home with the idea that everybody's going to kind of operate on this honor code that, you know, you're not going to do nothing to me. I'm not going to do nothing to you. And then the other thing is Clark was living with a mental health condition. He was living with mental illness and, you know, he needed help. And who was there to help him? Looked like nobody. Looked like he had nobody. 
And so that's a factor too, because that still exists. That's that issue is still exists today, where someone could be living with a mental health condition and just have the worst time trying to get the services to help walk them to wellness, whatever wellness looks like for them. So anyway, I want to tell different stories, and I'm gonna do that um, in the upcoming episodes of Infamous Baltimore. Anyway, so enough about that. Um, if you have a comment about this story or you have a tip about a, another infamous Baltimore story that you think might be interesting to look into, or you want to do a collaboration, what have you, feel free to go into the show notes and, and click on the web page to go to, um, to my anchor page and leave me a message. Um, all you have to do is click a button. You don't even have to download anchor to do it. Um, and I'll, I'll get the message. Also, while you're there, um, if you'd be so kind to donate, um, anything, even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. Um, but if you don't want to do that, as I always say, share an episode that you enjoy and share it with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Um, you know, any of the Juneteenth episodes, certainly any of the, um, have kind of come to be popular, but any of the, um, uh, black American folklore stories, uh, are, folklore black story uh stories my scary stories my daddy told me any of those episodes the out of africa episode um and out of wichita kansas any of those anything actually anything that stood out to you go ahead and share it um because when you share it you help raise the visibility of this show um and help me out so so thank you for helping me out in advance all right all right that's the show thanks again for listening Appreciate you. Until next time.